Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I will be chatting with Dr. Stephen uh, Newberg. I was, I was about to say Neuberg, but it's Newberg. Uh, he's a foundation professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, and he's also the co-director of the Kenrick uh, Newberg Social yeah. Cognition Laboratory. He also founded the ASU Global Group Relations Project, a multidisciplinary and global study of factors, including religion, which shape intergroup conflict. Dr. Newberg is a fellow of multiple scientific societies and the recipient of several teaching awards, including ASU's 2012 Outstanding Doctoral Men Mentor Award. So, Dr. Newberg, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Ah, well, thanks. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to this. Okay, thank you a lot. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about the evolutionary underpinnings, let's say, of uh, stereotypes and prejudices. So, to start off with that, uh, of course, we as humans have a very complex sociality, or at least we've evolved a very complex one. And so, in order for us to understand uh, how things like stereotypes and prejudices develop, it's very important for us to have, let's say, a set of tools from evolutionary theory and evolutionary psychology that are applied to human social cognition in, better to, in order to better understand how they developed. So, could you please tell us a little bit about what might be the set of tools that we need? That's a, that's a really big question. So, uh, let me... So, if, if, you, if you consider that the complexity of our sociality, not just the complexity of our human sociality, but the fact that we're that were there were animals who reproduce in certain kind of ways, and we have this kind of sociality, and we raise our young in, in certain kind of ways. We have a set of fundamental challenges that we have to meet in order to be uh, in order to be successful, in order to enhance our reproductive fitness. And in order to do that, what that means is that we have to be able to identify opportunities for meeting those challenges, and also be able to identify threats to meeting those, uh, those challenges. Uh, we need sets of cognitive mechanisms uh, that are designed to identify these threats and opportunities, uh, to process information uh, relevant to them in order to pro provide outputs, and then to act in, in kinds of ways that uh, enable us to exploit opportunities and to, um, and to mitigate against these kind of threats. So from, from my perspective, what the uh, what the job of the of the evolved mind is 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 really to identify and manage the threats and opportunities uh, to to these fundamental challenges, and uh, that and that we do that with everything we do that. Uh, you know, with the most simplest things in terms of, you know, walking across a train and being able to identify what's going to be slippery and what's going to be a hole and what's going to allow lots of traction and stuff. And we have the perceptual psychologists have figured out a long time ago that we pay attention to certain kind of cues that enable us to make pretty good inferences about whether I can step here and whether I shouldn't step there. Well, sort of the same thing in terms of, uh, in terms of identifying social threats and opportunities. You know, we, we look for cues that, uh, uh, that either through our own experience or our own experience uh, uh, led a little bit, constrained a little bit, uh, prepared a little bit 
uh, by our evolved history to identify particular individuals, their behaviors, their expressions as providing us opportunities and tools. And so from this perspective, what stereotypes are, are essentially beliefs that we have, probabilistic beliefs we have about the ways that uh, individuals are going to, uh, are likely to interact on the basis of some cues, cues having to do with, with sex, having to do with age, having to do with uh, uh, some kind of in-group, out-group status and the like. What kind, of, what kind of predictive utility, what might we be able to get out of uh, those cues in order to then understand what threats and opportunities you might afford me, so now I know how to manage my behaviors towards you to enhance my outcomes. So, so my, my sense is that if we really want to think, understand how people think about each other, what they pay attention to, what meaning they give to it, how they process that information, what the kind of outputs uh, are going to be, you need to think in terms of these fundamental challenges and the way that the mind has evolved to identify and, and manage those challenges. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So would you say that it would be a fair assessment to say that because we evolved in these sort of ultra-social environments that stereotypes would function as a kind of heuristic that we would apply in order for us to protect ourselves from potential threats, particularly from people that belong to outgroups? Well, I'd, I'd actually say that we, you know, we have a lot of positive stereotypes about positive stereotypes. I'm not a big fan of thinking in terms of positive and negative. I think we're, we're way more nuanced than that. Uh, but uh, we have positive stereotypes uh, about, uh, about folks, too, and that we ought to be as attuned to those because uh, those are, are heuristics that we can use to, uh, in fact, know how to approach and who to approach and in what kind of ways and in order to enhance uh, enhance our fitness. Uh, you know, you, you, you talked about uh, in-groups and out-groups and uh, but I, I think, you know, if we want to understand this, we want to we want to bring it back to think about these as mechanisms that evolved uh, also to uh, evolved initially just to manage relationships with other folks within our groups, right? Uh, and other and other folks that that we would come across, right? We still need to identify even someone within my group, someone I'm passing by on the street who I see every day. I still need to identify whether this person is likely to to be posing some kind of threat or opportunity for me today. And so I'll be paying attention to things like facial expressions and speed of movement and things of that kind of sort of of that sort. I'll be paying attention to whether they're kin or non-kin because kin afford me different kind of opportunities but also different kind of threats. They, they afford me uh, uh, ex uh, likely positive exchange uh, but they also afford me the threat of you know you know unfortunate bad reproduction right and so uh, we do want to be able to identify folks in terms of uh, certain kind of classes there but they're really classes of cues that are correlated with with affordances threat and opportunity affordances that have implications for me uh, right now uh, so we have a system that's designed for everyday interaction, which then gets extended when we start thinking about in-groups and out-groups and people who are more subjectively foreign versus familiar uh, to me and the like. But the system is really, I think, more fundamentally just about interacting with people or with animals who might be predators or prey uh, or even features of our physical environment as well. So everything just keeps getting scaffolded up. And as we start interacting as groups, those same tools, that the same design of the mind is now just looking for cues 
that would suggest something about uh, about the threats and opportunities that someone from an outgroup may or may not uh, impose. Now, now we know that members of outgroups are less, on average, are going to be less invested in me and members of my group than they are going to be invested in members of their own groups, right? And so there ought to be some kind of wariness right off the bat, and we do see that. Uh, with stereotypes, although it's also the case that sometimes we have stereotypes that uh, uh, about out groups that are more favorable than some of the stereotypes that we have about uh, about in groups uh, as well, because they're seen as not posing particular kind of threats, either because alliances have been created, right, or uh, because physical stature is small, uh, because they present other kind of cues that are that are that are non-threatening and and maybe uh, positive affordance providing. And, uh, so, I, you know, my sense is is that, and one of my students likes to use this uh, word, that uh, this phrase that we've been stereotyping stereotypes for a long time. That is, we've been presuming that they're negative, we're presuming that they're really simple and non-nuanced, and I think we're really wrong on, on both of those counts. People's stereotypes are really quite nuanced. Some research that we do, uh, for example, shows that people actually don't have or they don't use simple sex stereotypes and simple age stereotypes. What they do instead is they use stereotypes at the intersection. So, you know, thinking about a two-year-old girl and an 18-year-old uh, young woman and a 75-year-old grandfather and an 18-year-old young man, right? Those are our, our views. Aren't, it's not just you're adding up stereotypes we have about people as they get older. It's not as though we're just, you know, differentiating by males and females. But males and females look very different, and their differences from each other are strikingly different depending on what ages you're thinking about, what life stages people are at. Because at different life stages, people have different goals. They have different capacities, which, which afford us different kinds of opportunities and different kind of threats. So even in the simple notion of these stereotypes that we have, that we stereotype by sex, we stereotype age, well, that's not really quite right. We stereotype at intersections of these things, and, and, uh, and we have a decent amount of research now that demonstrates that. Yes, and in order for us to better deal with stereotypes, isn't it also important to have the notion that they are, from an evolutionary perspective, again, domain-specific and distinct uh, uh, from each other, that is, that they deal with certain specific types of information, let's say, and they are applied to specific types of people and in very particular contexts. Correct. That, that, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, because uh, so uh, we, we could stereotype uh, groups on any particular dimension, you know, eyebrow thickness. We tend not to. Right, we tend to we tend to stereotype uh, people on dimensions that are highly relevant uh, to the, the major challenges that we face. So, if you think about what these major challenges are, we need to avoid physical danger, we need to avoid disease, we need to uh, acquire resources, we need to uh, form uh, you know effective social affiliations. We want to gain status, we want to find mates, retain mates, take care of uh, kin, and the like. A lot of our stereotypes really sort of are aligned on those kinds of dimensions. They're also aligned on other kinds of dimensions uh, that uh, that are related to uh, what actually drive people's behavior and the kind of strategies they approach life from. So we know that people who live in different kind of ecologies engage different kind of strategies. Uh, uh, and uh, those strategies can range from being sort of 
present-oriented versus future-oriented, impulsive versus planful, uh, more aggressive versus less aggressive and the like. And so we actually have stereotypes uh, that are based on the ecologies we think that people are from because those ecologies actually do drive uh, behaviors and we want to be able to predict people's behaviors. Here's the other, you know, you mentioned the use of stereotypes as heuristic and people have been talking about that for a very long time. Uh, uh, but typically what they mean by that is that stereotypes are simplifying, right? That is that, you know, we, we just want to make a, a quick and dirty judgment. And they have tended to ignore uh, the fact we don't want to make any kind of quick and dirty judgment. We want to make a relatively quick judgment that gives that has some diagnosticity to it, right? That gives us a little bit of leverage on accuracy, that improves prediction uh, by a little bit. So what I would argue actually is that stereotypes are designed to increase accuracy uh, under circumstances where we don't have uh, we don't have a lot of time to learn about people as uh, as individuals, that actually their primary function is to increase uh, increase accurate prediction as opposed to their primary function merely being uh, uh, to to be fast. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what are, what is the difference between a stereotype? And the prejudice, uh, and uh, are prejudices always negative toward the people they are directed at, uh, and do they act in this case as a threat management mechanism or something like that? Yes. So uh, stereotypes uh, are beliefs we have about uh, the ways people are likely to behave. Uh, so they're they're beliefs. Prejudices are in the domain of feelings, in the domain of affect and emotions. And, you know, to really think about the distinction between stereotypes and prejudices, it's, it's useful uh, to think about the difference between identifying threats and opportunities and then responding to threats and opportunities. And emotions, affect is really in the, uh, the, the response management game, right? So you experience an emotion, uh, and what does it do? It, it both signals, right, especially intense emotions, especially signal that oh, maybe something's going on out here in the environment. I got to shift what I'm doing. Let's, let's stop thinking about lunch and let's think about escaping the, uh, the, the, the bulls running down the street towards me or, or, or something like that, right? Uh, and then when you start thinking about emo emotions, and so it, there's a signal function of emotions, but then there's the, also the energizing, the directing of behavior function of emotions as well. Well, when, when you start thinking about prejudices as emotions that have functions, that they're part of a system for managing our relations with, with other people, then, uh, then it leads you to realize that this general idea of prejudice out there, that it's, that it's sort of a negativity, maybe a positivity, but typically a negativity towards a group, you realize how insufficient that is because uh, we don't have just sort of one negative reaction to every kind of threat, right? If, if someone is, is, uh, is chasing me down with an angry expression in a big club, uh, I don't feel sadness. I don't feel disgust. I may or may not feel anger depending on whether I'm bigger and tougher than this guy or not. But what I what I experience is fear. On the other hand, if I'm walking down the sidewalk and there's vomit in the middle, I don't go I don't feel fear. I feel disgusted. I don't feel anger so much. If someone takes something from me uh, in an illegitimate way, it doesn't make me afraid. It makes it makes me anger, angry, right? We have very different emotional reactions to qualitatively different kinds of uh, of threats. And if that's the case, if groups uh, 
or individuals within certain classes are perceived to pose different kind of threats, we really ought to have qualitatively different prejudices towards them. It doesn't make sense to think about all these groups as negative. We should have some of our prejudices be anger-based. For example, towards people who take more than their fair share or are perceived to take more than their fair share. Some of our uh, prejudices ought to be fear-based, right? That, you know, those who, who we think are going to uh, pose physical dangers. Some should be disgust-based, you know, either because uh, uh, we, we see them as posing disease threats towards us or because we see them as contaminating, contaminating us in other kinds of ways, in moral ways or whatever, right? And in fact, we do. We have very different qualitative prejudices towards different kind of groups and attracts beautifully. Kathy Kostrom and I started this work, you know, now 15 years ago, it tracks beautifully the, the patterns of threats that people perceive, predicts the patterns of, of, of emotional prejudices that they perceive, and then Kathy went on and showed that those patterns predict the kinds of behaviors, right? Because if emotions are designed to, to lead to certain kind of behaviors, behaviors that have the aim to reduce the threat to begin with, right, or to exploit an opportunity in the positive side to begin with, then we ought to see very different kinds of forms of discrimination that link to very different forms of prejudice. And we see that as well. We see this beautiful sort of functional linkage between perceived threats that groups pose, the, 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 the nuances and the, and the kinds of uh, functional emotions they perceive, they, they feel, which then drives particular kind of behaviors. Some groups, you know, we think about them, we want more police protection on the streets. Uh, other other groups, we want to keep them away from uh, teaching our kids in the schools, right, and, and imposing their values on our kids. Very different kind of negative responses to groups because the particular threats we perceive groups as, as uh, posing are very different. There we have, there's so many examples where you can go and you can use typical prejudice scales. Imagine a thermometer. Right where you think positively, you think negatively towards this group on a thermometer, and you can find a point where you got two groups that are identical on the thermometer, and then you look at the profiles of the actual reactions people have, whether they're angry, disgust. You see totally different profiles, and yet that's totally masked by this notion of just thinking in terms of negativity and positivity. One, I think, one of the great benefits of an evolutionary perspective on thinking about uh, social perception and thinking about stereotypes and prejudices is that it allows us to discover all this nuance, all the sophisticated ways in which people actually do think about other people, which we which we totally miss because if you don't conceptualize uh, that there is uh, uh, that there's going to be nuance, your measures aren't designed to capture it, and you never discover it. Right? You can't discover what you don't measure. What the evolutionary approach says is, ah, there might be some nuance there of this sort. Now you measure it, and it's, 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 it's just totally obvious once you start measuring it. Okay, very interesting. And you just said that prejudices follow certain patterns. So would that also include them targeting certain very specific traits of people? That is, they, they don't target random aspects of people. They also fall in certain trends when it comes to that, correct? That's right, because you know there there are, cert there are certain sets of uh, of threats that require certain kind of responses. You know, anger is anger is very useful to get things back, right? To push people away. Disgust is really useful for avoiding folks, right? And uh, and moral disgust in terms of condemning them and trying to isolate them in certain kinds of ways. You know, uh, 
fear is really useful for for escaping and just and just getting away, right? And so, you know, different kind of groups are seen as posing different threats. So we should have it would make sense for us to have these these very different emotional reactions because they drive very different kind of functional behaviors. And in fact, we do. Um, you know, the the more you know, when I started taking the evolutionary perspective on this, uh, I'm, I've constantly just been. Uh, I wouldn't say surprise because once you take the perspective, you know, the predictions just sort of fall out really nice. But uh, but sort of amazed at how wrong we had been in thinking how, you know, psychology and sociology and political science and the like have been thinking about what prejudice is about and what the stereotypes are likely to, to look like. Uh, I think we've been sort of messing that up for a lot of years. Now, I'm not saying that those other perspectives aren't useful in certain kind of ways, but, you know, if I want to now tailor an intervention to reduce prejudice against gay men versus prejudice against uh, outgroup immigrants, I'm not going to do the same thing. It wouldn't make sense to do the same thing. People who have prejudices against those groups uh, are concerned about very different sets of threats, and they see also other kinds of opportunities, you know, uh, if I if I want to reduce those prejudices and reduce discrimination, I'm going to need to tailor to those particular perceived threats and to those particular perceived just putting people into contact with each other, which is what the literature typically talks about. Put people into contact and kumbaya. Well, no. If you put people into contact and they're afraid of those people, that's going to be bad. If you put people into contact of certain sorts and they're disgusted by those people, that's sort of bad, right? Uh, you have to do them. And you, you've, you've got to be nuanced in how you do these kind of things, and we have just haven't been paying attention to the nuance. We've been underestimating how sophisticated people are when they think about other people. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that last part would be very important for people to know about in order to better discuss uh, our current political issues regarding multiculturalism and things like that, correct? But just before we get into that, uh, I just remember that I read a paper of yours, at least one where you, you refer to certain stereotypes that are universal uh, and you refer to age. To, to the ones that, that are related to age, sex, and ecology. So could yes. you please explain, that, explain this and if nowadays there are more than just these three and, to, and focus particularly on, on the part of, about ecology because that will be very important for a question that I have later for you. Okay, so if you think people ought to have stereotypes, uh, if stereotypes are about prediction, then what you what you need to be doing is you ought to be looking for cues that give you information about the kinds of things that you want to predict, right? Uh, you ought to be looking for cues that actually uh, say something about differential uh, behaviors that people are going to engage in. Uh, well, so we can you you mentioned age, sex, ecology. We we can play with those, and I and I do think those are those are fundamental dimensions, right? Because it turns out that. Uh, our our behaviors change greatly over age, and 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 from a social perceiver's point of view, uh, behaviors that have implications for me that have afford that afford me threat or afford me opportunity, they change greatly over age. An infant affords dependence, right? So an infant for me uh, is is only needy, right? That's what an infant affords, right? Uh, uh, a teenager. You know, affords uh, rebellion and risk taking, and uh, and that might have implications for me depending on sort of the nature of the environment we're in and the like. Uh, a young adult, imagine imagine I'm a young adult like you. Uh, so uh, I, for a young person, 
you know, another young person, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, affords maybe mating, comp uh, mating opportunities, but also competition kind of kind of opportunities, right? Depending whether the same sex or other sex and depending on sexual preference, older folks uh, uh, afford power. Which might be a useful thing, but also might be a thing that can uh, that can that can keep me down and minimize my own status. Uh, older older folks, you know, afford different kinds of wisdom and knowledge, right, about how things work, right. And so, for me to have stereotypes about age, right, is really useful because I now have a little bit of a head start on sort of understanding what this person could be doing for me, or in fact, to me, right. Sex, same thing, right? Males and females are different in certain kinds of ways that are really important for given my goals, right? You know, if I want to reproduce, if I'm heterosexual, uh, and I want to, I want to reproduce. Uh, well, females mean something different to me. Young, you know, females mean something different to me than men. But of course. Not three-year-old females versus, you know, three-year-old girls versus three-year-old boys, right? There's no sexual maturity there. They're irrelevant, you know, given, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm sort of in a mating frame of mind, right? Older, when I'm looking for people to take care, or if I'm a little kid looking at, looking at you know, uh, sort of women or men, right? Uh, uh, I, I'm there. Women may be more nurturant. Than, than young men versus you know young women versus young men they afford different kind of things it makes sense to be thinking in terms of sex as well because the sexes aren't aren't identical in what they afford us and again as I alluded to earlier the environments that we grow in grow up in and uh, and live in have huge implications for what our behavioral strategies are and not just humans you can think about you can think about all critters here right so so creatures that live in harsh and unpredictable environments. Uh, and some of this work comes out of life history theory, and maybe you want to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, 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 all sorts of animals, forget about humans for a sec, that live in harsh, unpredictable environments, engage in strategies that we could we could sort of caricature as fast compared to critters that, that live in uh, – in more uh, stable, resource-sufficient, predictable kind of uh, environments. In the former environment, uh, because life is uncertain, lifespan is uncertain, uh, there are all sorts of extrinsic dangers that might exist, it makes sense to sort of speed life up a bit, right? And we so, so we see across probably hundreds, hundreds of species now that have been looked at for this, that in these kind of ecologies, they tend to hit sexual, they tend to trade off Building, building up bodies and building up skills and building up those for hitting sexual maturity earlier. They start reproducing earlier. They tend to be more likely to have a larger number of offspring uh, that they can invest a little bit less in in each as opposed to a smaller number that they can invest in uh, a little bit more uh, because, you know, reproductive fitness sort of demands of them uh, moving quickly lest the unpredictability and the chaotic aspects in the environment cut you off before you have an opportunity to reproduce. And so we know that ecologies actually do shape behaviors, right? Um, and so we should be paying attention to the ecologies. If I have cues to the ecology you grew up in and the or the ecology you live in now or have stereotypes about that, that that ought to be, that ought to be influencing how I'm going to interact with you versus someone else who maybe comes out of a different kind of ecology. And we now have data. Uh, some of it's published. Some of it uh, will be written up soon uh, cross-culturally uh, that show that people, in fact, have these, these ecology stereotypes. And these ecology stereotypes, Stereotypes are are very similar. People who are seen to come from unpredictable, harsh ecologies 
uh, are seen as being more impulsive versus planning, as uh, as uh, being less willing to in, uh, invest in uh, in either in their own sort of growth and uh, embodied capital, uh, as uh, investing less in offsprings. As uh, as being likely to have more kids, as doing less planning for the future, as being more opportunistic and risk taking. So that set of fast, that caricature, that syndrome of sort of fast strategies, of fast tactics within sort of uh, those strategies. People who come from those kind of ecologies, those harsh, unpredictable ecologies. Regardless of whether you're in the United States or whether you're in India or whether you're in Romania or whether you're in Japan, uh, I'm trying to think of where else we've uh, looked at so far. Uh, the stereotypes are the same, right? The stereotypes are the same. It, you you could uh, you could look at any of these places, and you tell someone you either describe an environment or you show pictures of environments that are sort of prototypical of fast versus slow ecologies, and you ask them what these people are like on these scales, and they give you pretty much the same thing. Uh, this, in fact, stereotypes in the United States of ecology, whether someone comes from a harsh, unpredictable ecology versus a uh, predictable, uh, resource-sufficient kind of uh, ecology, those stereotypes are stronger than race stereotypes in the United States. Uh, and there's an interesting link between ecology and race in the United States, and I don't know if you're planning on going there or yes, not. Yes, yes, I'm planning on going there, so okay. let's leave that part for a okay. couple of questions next. So, okay. Uh, okay, so just before we get into that, so all of these things that we, uh, all of this basic stuff that we've been talking about related to stereotypes and prejudices, this is what gives us a biological slash psychological basis for things like xenophobia and ethnocentrism, right? Yes. So now, it, I don't want to. I, I want to be careful to communicate that we're not talking about any of these things as being deterministic, right? Or because uh, because you know we also evolved a lot of learning mechanisms. Now a lot of these learning mechanisms are prepared learning mechanisms, right? They're prepared to learn to learn about kinds of things that that ancestrally may have been a little bit more threatening versus a little bit more uh, opportunity uh, posing. Uh, but yeah, so we are prepared. Our minds are designed in the kinds of ways that make things like xenophobia and ethnocentrism really easy to emerge. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult, even with well-designed uh, interventions, to keep them tamped down. And and you know, one example I like to think about the, I like to think about uh, people's prejudices and stereotypes of immigrants, particularly immigrants coming from. Uh, you know, tough neighborhoods, difficult, you know, refugees coming in under difficult circumstances, people ex escaping poverty and the like, uh, escaping warfare. Uh, that uh, one of the really difficult things about, uh, about reducing prejudices and, and certain stereotypes towards immigrants is that they're actually perceived as posing a whole bunch of threats. It's not as though they're perceived as... Uh, they're from they're from outgroups, and therefore uh, the the presumption is that they're not going to be quite as invested in us as they will be in themselves, right? Uh, which means they they there may be a little bit more of an inclination. Our perceptions go of them being dangerous to us. They haven't yet invested in in our pool of resources, and therefore by definition, once they start taking out, they're taking out more than they've invested, right? And we have these systems designed to to be tracking. Uh, and responding to that. Uh, they're subjectively foreign. 
Uh, I know you've talked to Mark Schauer uh, before, and I don't know if he talked about this as well, but, you know, when groups are subjectively foreign, they, they engage sort of this disease avoidance uh, uh, mechanisms, and so disgust is especially likely to, uh, to pop out as well. And so, you know, you've got fear, anger, and disgust right off the bat, right, with, this, with, with, with the fact that just knowing that someone is an immigrant coming from someplace else. So you've got, it's, it's in, you know, I don't know if uh, in Portugal you have this game called Whack-A-Mole, where it's there, it's like an amusement park kind of thing where things pop up in arcade and you got to sort of knock them down as they pop up. Well, think about that in terms of the dilemma uh, faced by immigrants trying to challenge prejudices because, you know, what you might do, a behavior you might do to challenge some may not do anything for another one. And so you've got you've got all these all these different dimensions that you have to uh, uh, try to overcome sort of all, all at once. Uh, and so, yes, we're, we are the mind is totally prepared for xenophobia, it's totally uh, prepared uh, for ethnocentrism uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so earlier you were about to talk about uh, the, um, the stereotypes regarding race in the US, and I think that is really interesting. So perhaps uh, I could, uh, perhaps you could talk about it now and try to perhaps uh, make a relation, establish a relationship between that and life history theory. You already talked quite a bit about that before, but uh, so please go ahead. I'll try to link it all together. Okay, yeah. so you know, we talked about how people uh, have ecology stereotypes, which makes sense because ecologies do shape behavior. Uh, and we talked about the difference between these sort of faster versus slower uh, behaviors, behaviors that on the one end are more opportunistic and uh, impulsive versus planned, uh, present-oriented versus future-oriented, more risky versus less risky, sort of more uh, reproductively unrestricted versus reproductively restricted and the like. So those behaviors are predicted somewhat, not perfectly, but predicted somewhat by ecologies. Uh, so you might expect that groups that are stereotyped and believed uh, to exist differentially in these ecologies would also be viewed as having those particular kind of characteristics. So in the United States, uh, African Americans and Hispanics are more likely to live in these more desperate kind of ecologies, uh, harsh, unpredictable kind of ecologies, compared to whites and Asians who are more likely to live in these uh, uh, more resource-sufficient resource and predictable kind of ecologies. Uh, and what you see when you look at stereotypes, especially along these life history kind of behaviors, right, things having to do with planning and future versus present and uh, impulsiveness and, and those kind of dimensions, on those dimensions, people uh, do in fact stereotype African Americans and Hispanic Americans as being faster and uh, whites and Asians as being slower. And in a set of studies that we've done, uh, we've shown that actually if you pit against each other just base stereotypes about so so if you just look at race stereotypes they track really beautifully ecology stereotypes right uh, black stereotypes track desperate ecology stereotypes white stereotypes uh, stereotypes about whites track stereotypes about people and hopefully ecologies but then you pit them against each other right you pit race 
against uh, ecology. So now you find out about black and white people in hopeful ecologies and black and white people in desperate ecologies. If, if the stereotypes about race are, are being driven primarily about race, you should see those stereotypes sort of regardless of ecology. They're driven primarily about ecology. You shouldn't see race differences within ecologies as blacks and whites and hopeful ecologies ought to be viewed very similar on these uh, life history traits. And blacks and whites and desperate ecologies ought to be viewed very similarly, again, on these life history traits. And that's exactly what we find in these data. And we've replicated this now multiple times. We now have a study uh, that we're about to launch uh, in three or four places around the world uh, where we're going to be looking at uh, groups. And, 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 and the reason why this makes sense is that in the United States, you know, blacks and Hispanics are more likely to be in desperate ecologies and whites are somewhat more likely to be. So there's a confound between ecology and race. Now, there'll be places where there's no confound between ecology and race, but there may be a confound between ecology and religion or, or ecology and tribe or ecology and nationality or, and, or religion, right? And those kind of, and so we're, we're about to embark on, on a set of studies that now look at that and do, do we get the same kind of idea that it's really the ecology that's driving the stereotypes towards these groups as opposed to something essential, you know, about the groupness uh, uh, itself? And uh, I, I think I think we're going to discover that that's uh, that's the case case based on just some prelim, preliminary work that we've done. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll we'll have a paper out on that within uh, within you know six months or a year or something. We're we're, we're about to start running uh, running studies on that. Uh, so now now let let me throw a caveat in here. You know we talked before about how stereotypes are different than prejudices, right? Stereotypes are about predicting opportunities and threats, predicting others' behaviors that would have implications. How one responds to that might, in fact, be very different, right? That's prejudices. So we're not saying necessarily that the prejudices are always going to follow. So, for example, well, I'll come back to this in a sec. Uh, so we're not necessarily saying that the prejudices are going to perfectly follow these these beliefs, these stereotypes. We're also not saying that there are other aren't, aren't other sources of prejudices as well. Uh, that sources things that influence prejudice as well. That's not part of this sort of life history ecology kind of mechanism set of mechanisms. Uh, and uh, uh, well, I'll 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 leave it at that. And so the notion is. Uh, that uh, and, and and I'm not saying that people don't have stereotypes about other kind of dimensions as well that aren't predicted by this ecology kind of perspective, right? But on these particular traits, and they're particularly pernicious traits uh, when you when you think about you know race stereotypes and and ethnicity stereotypes that 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 people are impulsive, they're risk taking, they don't think about the future, they don't plan, they place other people in danger. They're they're quickly breeding and they don't look after them, take care of their own, right? I mean, those are those are sort of nasty kinds of uh, stereotypes. They they can be used uh, to to great effect in terms of uh, in terms of uh, imposing costs on other kind of groups. Those stereotypes are driven primarily by uh, ecology. We're arguing as opposed to the groupness per se. I'm not sure I answered your whole question. I probably answered questions you didn't ask, and I uh, and I failed to answer part of the question you did ask. But 
Oh, no, 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 your, your answer was great. Okay, so, but because you're also very interested in studying religion and the effects that religion might have in people and in societies, uh, have you already done some studies about perhaps how religion might contribute to it, the exaggeration of certain stereotypes and perhaps how it can contribute then to intergroup conflict? Yeah, so... Uh... When, when I think about religion, uh, I don't think about it as a thing. Uh, so when we think about religion, we can think about religion as a set of beliefs, right? Uh, we can think about it as a set of practices and rituals and the like, right? Uh, we can think about it as uh, an organizational structure, right? A set of connections between people. We can think about it as... Uh, uh, as a as a, an institutionalized, either more formally or less formally, means of transferring resources and looking out for each other, or marshaling resources for defense or offense and the like. So religion really has a lot of facets, right? And so from from my perspective, it'd be really useful to look at those facets a little bit independently in terms, right? So so there's some religions uh, where it's just in individuals' heads, right? These more spiritual kinds of uh, religions, new age kind of religions, they're not necessarily coalitional, right? Uh, and so our views towards those kinds of folks, right, uh, are, are going to be a lot different than our views towards folks uh, who maybe even aren't as spiritual and don't even have the same kind of strong sort of deity beliefs or whatever, but they're highly organized and they're coalitional, right? So that... In, in that sense, those kind of religions we treat like coalitional outgroups in a lot of ways. And so uh, uh, and so to the extent that we would be worried about them taking resources or worried about them imposing values or something, and knowing that they're coalitional gives them more power, right? Gives them more competence, more ability to sort of, you know, enact whatever their inclinations uh, might be, their, their own desires might be, they might be seen as posing a different kind of threat. Uh, I think it's also interesting to think about different religions with quality. Now we can think about beliefs, right? Another way of thinking about this, right? So uh, uh, certain uh, religions, so uh, certain religions, well, actually, let, so if your religion believes that uh, uh, that upon conception, uh, what you have is a growing baby as opposed to a fetus, right? And therefore, abortion would be would be murder. Right. Uh, that's a set of beliefs that would run, run counter to other folks beliefs. And of course, you know, those folks, they look at other beliefs that don't quite that aren't quite the same and they view counter. Right. Uh, and so that creates, you know, these value discrepancies can create some level of uh, of conflict. Some of some of our research has shown, though, that those value discrepancies really have meaningful effects when the groups are also seen as sort of the religion is seen as infused toward around in, in the group that is the groups are seen as somewhat more coalitional because then you can actually act in ways to impose right so whatever beliefs you have in your head i really couldn't care less if you want those beliefs now to be taught to my to my six-year-old children in elementary school now i care right because i want my kids to have my beliefs i don't necessarily want them to have right to have to have your beliefs right and so you've got this sort of intersection well are the beliefs compatible or incompatible you know 
And then do this, does the group proselytize or do they, they want to impose their beliefs on, on others? Well, that now if they're incompatible, it's a really big threat to me. And now I've got to act in a, in a very different kind of way uh, to the extent uh, that I view your group as being hierarchical versus sort of flat. That would have implications on uh, how I view people down here versus up there, whereas, you know, groups that are flat, I pretty much would view everybody as being more homogeneous in certain kinds of ways, right? And so I think if you break down features of religion um, and re religiosity and religion uh, as, a, as a social construct as well, my framework says that you're going to be making a lot of nuanced predictions, and now you need to know more about what the particular sort of rubbing of religions against each other, uh, what the affordances of that might be in terms of different threats and different opportunities. I mean, there are all sorts of interesting things, right? You think that uh, evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews, you think they, they, you know, there's a lot that they don't have in common. And yet, they, they're, they're both uh, highly enthusiastic about their, about their being a need for a state of Israel, a Jewish state of Israel. In the United States, right, they're they're actually strong allies in in terms of uh, in terms of thinking about Israel. They disagree about a lot of other things, right? But they're allies there. So you know, where where do when religions rub up against each other? What are the specific affordances uh, that they uh, opportunities and threats they pose to each other? My framework would say you focus on those, and that will tell you something about what the prejudices are going to look like, right? I mean, in the United States, we have very strong prejudices against uh, non-religious people, right, against atheists. But mostly in terms of whether atheists, uh, to the extent that they're seen as trying to impose their atheism on other folks. Atheists who mind their own business, uh, people may think that they're misguided, right? Uh, but, you know, they're not going to think that, uh, 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 that I'm a threat to them. But... If I'm all of a sudden not wanting any mentions of God in school or I don't want schools to celebrate Christmas or something like that or Hanukkah or anything, right, uh, then I'm a threat. Then I become a threat. Okay, so very well, Dr. Newberg. Uh, you, I know you only have 10 more minutes to give me, so I will just ask you one more question, that is. So we've been talking about all of these o things. Only 10 minutes for one question? I could talk for hours on any question. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no problem at all. So we've been talking about all of this knowledge that we have from evolutionary and so social psychology uh, related to stereotypes and prejudices. So uh, what would be some, uh, some of the ways we can apply this knowledge in order to try to fight the prejudices that people have and their potential, potential pernicious effects in society? Right. So uh, that's a great that's a great question, a really important question. I think the I think the first thing, uh, the first thing you need to do to fix anything is to uh, is to understand how it works. And so you know, uh, you know, my I don't want to quite use the word disappointment with sort of traditional ways of thinking about prejudice because you know you start someplace and you and you do what you can and you build, uh, uh, but then. You you need to uh, at some point you're you're under you you need to recognize that your understanding is probably a little bit too simple and that's going to have that's going to have certain kind of costs. If I you know if my car breaks down 
you know, if I don't, I need to understand something about engines to get my car rolling again. Um, and if I just, if all I know about engines is that, uh, well, you sort of put energy in and then they go, right? Okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to get some gasoline. I'm going to put more gasoline in the car and then I'm going to find it's still not going to go and then I'm stuck, right? It, it, just, it just doesn't work. Um, if I understand more about the nuances of, of car engines, then maybe I have more leverage. And, and what I've been arguing is that uh, the, the kind of approach that we and others have been taking uh, give us uh, uh, more information, uh, give, us, give us a greater appreciation of those nuances. But then, of course, as you're suggesting, now what do you do with, with that extra information? And uh, my sense is, is that you really need to tailor interventions. This idea of having broad diversity appreciation programs or broad, uh, you know, we are the world, uh, let's all get along kind of, uh, kind of programs. I think they're good for maybe uh, getting people to sort of recognize that, that maybe they've been wrong about some things in the past and maybe to motivate folks. But they're not going to do much to deal with specific uh, stereotypes or specific prejudices until you actually sort of address the specificity uh, of them. And I'm talking about uh, so part of that part of that's going to be informational, but it has to be more than just information, right? So if I if I if the stereotype is that I believe that your group uh, poses a values threat to me, right? Uh, well, I need to know actually that our values are actually more similar than different in certain kind of ways. And I need to know that uh, the parts of your values that are different and that you're willing to work with me on the similar parts of the values. And the parts of the values that look different are really only different on the surface level uh, as opposed to the deep level. And even on the surface level, you don't want to impose those on my, on my kids, right? And if we can get to that via certain kind of uh, – sort of tailored, controlled kind of interactions where I sort of guide groups of people through these kinds of, of steps, then, then, we have a, then we have a start, right? Uh, uh, if all I do is say, you know, bring people in, and this is what a lot of these programs do, say, hey, isn't difference great, right? He's different. He believes those things. They're different than what you believe. Isn't that great? We should appreciate difference. Okay, well, I'm actually a fan of appreciating difference, but if I still perceive at the end that your difference is gonna is gonna pose threats to my kids, it doesn't make it there. I'm not going. I'm not going to appreciate your difference. Yeah, I'll appreciate your difference. You go to that side of the globe, and I'll stay here, and you can be as different as you want. Stay away from my kids, right? And so you really need to you really need to tailor it uh, to these steps, which means that you know what folks like like me need to do is that we need to really sort of lay out templates for thinking through the process of, uh, of de-biasing uh, uh, these kinds of stereotypes, these kind of erroneous stereotypes, when they're erroneous. But, you know, from my perspective, there's also this, this other little bit, right? I mean, it may be that, in fact, you do want to change. You do want to stop, uh, uh, you know, stop folks from having abortions, or you do want to teach things about, about God in school that I don't want to have taught in school. If that's the case, you're a threat and, and to me. And so, uh, you know, the system, my system is designed, right, to mitigate. And it's not clear. Uh, yes, I can, I can respect your view, but respect my view and, and sort of uh, so don't impose, right? And so the idea of, of, of just 
willy-nilly saying we ought to change all stereotypes and therefore get rid of all prejudices. Well, I, I don't think that's right either. I don't, first of all, I don't think it's doable. Uh, the mind's not designed to do it, and I don't think it actually is necessarily a, a moral thing to do when people actually pose real threats. Yeah, I have stereotypes about child molesters, right? I have beliefs about the ability to cure child molesters. Uh, you may want me to be favorable towards child molesters, but as long as I know that they that there's an inclination and it's very hard to change that inclination, no, I don't want child molesters near my kids' schools, right? I mean, I mean, it's really and and it's, and uh, and uh, uh, you know we we get a little bit here into this idea of values and we get into this idea of error management and the smoke det so. Uh, error management ideas and the smoke detector principle that Randy Nessie uh, talks about in terms of values sort of calibrating the kind of errors we're willing to uh, we're willing to tolerate, right? So I may have stereotypes about your group, and if this and if the implications of the stereotypes aren't that great, I can be accepting of you despite and we can get along fine and we just don't we don't we, we stay out of that domain we make sure we don't overlap in the domain of our different values or something and, and all is good right uh, on the other hand if there's a little bit of a chance that you might in fact come in and try to impose and if what you're going to impose is something that has big implications well I'm going to caliber I'm going to be highly sensitive to any kind of cue that that maybe you're not going to sort of mind your own business with your values right uh, and so under those circumstances, if I really value, you know, the well-being of my kids and I really believe that you pose a threat to my kids, then, uh, you know, where exactly is the morality for whether I should let you have access to my kids or not? I mean, where does that fall? So, you know, what I can do as a, as a scientist is sort of lay out uh, – Understand the way the system works, understand the way the system calibrates, the factors that do it, what the costs and benefits are of doing different things. Ultimately, it's up to, it's up to individuals and policymakers and institutions to decide how they want to dial up uh, the, their threat detectors and their emotions detectors, how they want to balance these competing their, – their opportunity detectors, how they want to balance these, uh, uh, these competing kind of values uh, in, in order to, uh, uh, to make us get along better. Sometimes we may be better off not getting along better. Now, I believe that most of the case that's, that's not true, right? Uh, uh, but I think one of the things that the, the approach does is that it's sort of a realistic approach. Uh, and you know, let's lay all. It enables us to, enables us to lay more facts on the ground, right? Understanding on the ground, and then we can have those values debates and decide exactly what we want to do. I think I think the perspective has great uh, uh, great uh, potential for reducing uh, reducing stereotypes. I think society and individuals need to decide which ones they they're really invested in in reducing and which ones they're not. And uh, I'm just a scientist. I have no special status compared to anyone else in terms of uh, in, in terms of uh, addressing that issue. Okay, so Dr. Newberg, just before we go, could you please tell people what are the best places on the internet for them to follow your work? Uh, so if you type in uh, Stephen uh, with a V Newberg uh, uh, on Google at or at and uh, and Arizona State University, 
you'll you'll get to uh, you'll get to uh, my lab webpage. You can go look for the lab webpage. Uh, we have some articles that are available up there. You click on click on links and you can get to uh, you can get to some PDFs. Uh, and if there's specific things that you can't get to because they're still behind firewalls, send me an email and I'm happy to uh, to send uh, send that work along. Okay, so Dr. Newberg, and sorry, and sorry if I mispronounced your name once or twice or twice during the interview, because just last year I was in Germany, and so the Neuberg stuck in That's my right. mind. Okay. And, and in fact, and in fact, you're correct. So that is the that is the correct German uh, pronunciation. But we've we Americanized it a couple generations ago. Okay, great. So it was a big pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you a lot for taking the time. And perhaps, I don't know, in the future, we could have another conversation like this. That, that would be great. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And, uh, and I appreciated the opportunity to share some of these ideas. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.